Good morning, evening, afternoon, or whatever time it is, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of Cinema, the podcast. And uh, this week, episode 18, uh, we're going to look at George Lucas and the entire Star Wars franchise as The Rise of Skywalker gears up to start coming around. And there are a lot of things that have been said already, and, and this is not really a rehash. And, and, and most of all, I'm not going into bashing the prequels. Um, I, I will be talking about them only from the happenstance of, of an entertainment aspect and, and the way that they were made. However, I do believe that Red Letter Media's Mr. Plinkett has the definitive, absolute, complete assessment of everything wrong with George Lucas's prequels and also finds the positive in those prequels. This is a look at George uh, as a man, as someone who, as a young filmmaker, revolutionized the the film industry and, and distribution and got his dream up on the screen a- against all odds. I mean, the story of how Star Wars, the original Star Wars, which has now been dubbed A New Hope, Episode 4, A New Hope, um, how it got to screen is is just amazing. And, and it's really one of those uh, great kind of tales that, that inspires filmmakers to want to go out there and be the next George Lucas. So I think probably the best way to, to start this podcast is just to get it out on the table. And and that is, look, George Lucas has been kicked around for the facial he gave us with the Star Wars prequels. And he's taken a real drubbing in the media, especially when he sold everything over to Disney for the famous $4 billion check. And I, I got to say something up front right here. And and for a while, I was growing really weary of, of George Lucas's perceived whining in the press at... Uh, uh, the Force Awakens, and and of course, what I personally feel the disaster of of the Last Jedi, um, and George, you know, would go out there and he and he would say stuff, and and then all of a sudden he would kind of retract his statement, almost like Disney, you know, took him to the woodshed and said, George, that's that's not what we talked about here. You got four billion dollars, and you're supposed to play nice. Uh, what I did not know, and and I said at one point, it's like if I had four billion dollars. I would be off doing as, as much good as possible. And uh, I've heard this now and looked it up as well uh, and confirmed that, that the majority of that $4 billion that, that Lucas received has gone into various philanthropic and, and charitable uh, outlets. So the, the man has done a lot of good with the money that he's been given. And, and a lot of people are, believe it or not, literally in their lives better off because of Star Wars. So, you know, good for George on that one. And and maybe um, that makes me feel that I, I guess I shouldn't really be complaining as much as when he complains. He, he might have something there. So, and building right on with that, which seems to be a common thread with cinema, is uh, the, the idea of fans complaining. Uh, a lot of people out there are, are the armchair critics, and I've talked about this on a number of episodes. People who have no idea how films are made, they have no idea about film history, and yet they are the critics, and, and they're savaging everything. And we can talk about The Last, Last Jedi forever, but I, I guess I do want to ask all the Star Wars fan experts, you know, how is your movie doing? You know, you know your film, the, the one you don't write, the, the one you didn't direct, the one you didn't produce. I mean, let me be more specific. How about all you angry fans out there? How are your movies, you know, the ones in your heads or on your hard drives or in the reams of your unpublished fan fiction? How are they doing? You see, there's a big difference to sit there and critique and, and throw mud at somebody 
And, and the number one question I always have back is, is what do you got? I was never a Star Wars fan, and I put that in quotes, because I, I really do believe that the fan, which is part of the word fanatic, it, it implies mental instability. I enjoyed the Star Wars films, and I, I drew inspiration from them as a dreaming fu- future filmmaker. But did I dress up as Obi-Wan, Han, Luke, or Chewie for the opening of, of Empire Strikes Back or, or Return of the Jedi? Absolutely not. I, I can say that the most flagrantly fan thing I ever did for Star Wars was I cut out of school in 10th grade, at the end of 10th grade, to uh, go up to the mall to get in line for Return of the Jedi. Because at that point, we all thought, this is it. This is the last one. And uh, we're going to find out if Darth Vader is really Luke's father. Because again, we didn't have the internet and 24-hour news to run spoilers all the time and ruin everything for us and give away every small piece of minutia that was out there. Uh, we actually went back and, and they held this secret for two years and wanted to be surprised. And we walked in surprised and we left surprised. And I stood in line for probably seven hours until they opened the gates to go see Return of the Jedi. And I went down into the theater and I, I watched the movie and I remember the audience going absolutely nuts every time one of the major characters came on screen. And that's when I started to realize just how much of the pop culture Star Wars had taken up. And that it, that was when I understood, I was in 10th grade, uh, that's when I understood, man, that, that Star Wars had now officially become a thing. And it had spread. It was more than just, you know, you got some toys and Legos and all that stuff. This had become a thing. Now, to be fair, they were movies and they weren't my life. I saw The Empire Strikes Back like three, four times in theaters and I enjoyed it. They were always matinees too. I don't think I ever saw The Empire Strikes Back at night in a movie theater. They were great popcorn entertainment matinee films. While I enjoyed them, I didn't live and breathe Star Wars. I I didn't, you know, sit and write fan fiction. And I, I guess, look, if you do that, good for you. But that's not going to change anything, and that's not going to do anything. If it helps you as a writer, I, I guess I can understand that. I guess if it brings you some joy and enjoyment, then I guess I understand that too. But to think that fans control the property, and you hear this all the time online, if it wasn't for us fans, Lucas wouldn't have anything. No, that's not necessarily true. You see, there there is a general audience out there as well, and the super fans have done their share of helping Lucas along, but there are a lot of other people out there that don't take Star Wars or Star Trek or or Marvel or anything as seriously as some as, as some of these people do. And so that's a really arrogant, haughty statement from people to say that without us, there, there just wouldn't be a Star Wars. That, that is absolutely incorrect. And, and on top of it all, I think the most important thing is super fans suck the fun out of movies. They are the Sith. One is the theater seat critic and the other is the jock armchair quarterback. And I'll take this beyond Star Wars. I mean, freaking out over a movie such as, you know, when Keaton was going to be Batman or Han shot first or or Glenn's Walking Dead fate or blonde or black James Bond and, and the whole Jar Jar Binks affair. It, that is no different than sports fans who tear down stadiums, harm each other and trash property in the wake of a victory or a defeat. 
Seeing a four-year-old uh, strapped in a car seat crying hysterically online in those stupid YouTube videos that parents play because a football team didn't make it to the Super Bowl or a player was traded is nothing short of child abuse. No four-year-old loves sports that much. They don't know how to talk, let alone embrace that kind of fandom. They love it because it's instilled in them by their parent. No child is born a fan any more than a child is born into a religious or political ideology. The response I get back to these kind of statements is always, oh, you don't understand sports. That's because you don't play sports. That's because you don't like sports. That is not true. Let me, let me tell you something. I can tell you the power of sports will do more to unify a country than the political process. And I've seen that happen. I was in the Galapagos Islands off the coast of Ecuador during a huge soccer World Cup event. And Ecuador was in the event and they had scored a goal. And we were on an island where this was one of the few islands where there was actually a population. And that population, pretty much that town, was the entire population of that island. And I was there getting a drink at a bar when they scored. And as I walked out of the bar, it seemed like the entire town erupted into applause. That's the power of sports. And I get it. But I also knew had a friend and knew someone who was an assistant coach for the Philadelphia Eagles. And I asked him one time, I said, you know, why do people do that? Like, why do... Why do fans get so worked up over shit that they they beat each other up or they they smash stuff and they destroy and vandalize? And, and his answer was is, I really don't know. Like, I love when you look online and you read Facebook and somebody says, you know, for their team, we did it. No, you fucking did nothing, okay? The team did it. The coach did it. We is not the proper pronoun here. They or them that's the proper pronoun. However, not we. You did not go down on the field and play. You did not pay the player's salary. You did not train with them. You did not help them in any way. You bought a ticket, which is great, but you do not own that team. So we did nothing. That would be like me saying when a film that I like wins an Oscar, we did it. I had nothing to do with it. I didn't write the film. I didn't produce it. I didn't work on it. We is not the proper pronoun. Be very careful how you use we, us, or I, because you probably had nothing to do with the success of your sports team, film, whatever it is. And we've seen this spill over. Who the fuck cares how much money a movie makes? You're not making it. Unless you have a direct correlation to a paycheck to that film, it's not your movie. So you can hate it and that's fine. You can write about it. You can complain about it. You can post negative reviews. You can do all of that. That is within the realm of, of your rights. But you own nothing. George Lucas owes you nothing. Steven Spielberg owes you nothing. No one owes a fan anything except a simple thank you. I put it to all of you out there who have wrecked it for the rest of us. You are as much to blame for the very things you troll, rail, rant, and pontificate against. George Lucas deserves some shit, that's for sure, but the super fans asked for it. You know, there, there once was a guy named Gene Roddenberry, you may have heard of him. He had a vision for a universe populated with exciting characters, high concept adventures, and lots of spaceships and battles. And his vision was for a wagon train to the stars, as he called Star Trek. 
Gene created iconic characters and influenced a generation of TV viewers and filmgoers. And then later on, some kid named George, George Lucas, had a space dream too. After shopping his story all over Hollywood, he finally got it to the screen, and he waited for it to fail. But instead, it became the highest grossing motion picture to date and held that record for years. George and Gene loved their universes, and maybe a little too much. Roddenberry's universe became a metaphor for the Cold War, while Lucas's world echoed the Nazi Third Reich. When success expanded the scope of their space, both men found themselves moved to different positions. The irony is that Star Wars opened the door for Star Trek The Motion Picture. And while the Star Trek TV series was canceled after only three seasons, fans demanded its return. Star Trek found new life on the convention circuit. Star Trek fans lined up for autographs, comic books, and toys. And I know what you're saying. See, the fans do make a difference. They do owe us. No, they don't. Star Wars would eventually follow suit with the convention circuit. And a new Star Trek series was put into development until Star Wars blew away records and the belief that science fiction films were dead. Star Wars changed all of that. However, Roddenberry would eventually be seen as a dinosaur. He was getting too old and he, he was becoming stale in, in his own world. His recycled plots and, and the failure for the 1979 Star Trek The Motion Picture to smash records and excite audiences allowed Paramount Pictures to, to kind of squeeze Gene out. Harv Bennett would step in and Roddenberry was, as I like to call it, kicked upstairs and took a more executive role to the, to the film franchise. He still fought to have his stories put to screen. He, he even subverted the scripts that became The Wrath of Khan. Roddenberry believed The Wrath of Khan to be a poor sequel to the 1979 motion picture, which I, I can't believe, but that's, that was Roddenberry's take. And similarly, George Lucas would later call The Empire Strikes Back the sequel to his own original 1977 Star Wars, the worst film in the series. And, and there's plenty of documentation online to back that up. However, Empire Strikes Back is generally considered by many to be the best of all the Star Wars films. And while Lucas's criticism is indeed inaccurate, to say the least, it's also very telling. It, it kind of says a lot about George Lucas. When, when Lucas says the worst, I don't think he means the production value of the film. And while Lucas's contempt for actors has, has widely been circulated, the film also boasts the best performances of all the present films. So what exactly did Lucas mean by that the Empire Strikes Back was the worst? If you take a piece of dialogue here, there is a quote from Harrison Ford who said to George Lucas on the set of Star Wars, now known as A New Hope, George, you can type this shit, but you sure as hell can't say it. And the problem with Empire for George Lucas was, it wasn't his story. Star Wars was his story, but The Empire Strikes Back came from other people. Lucas had his own idea of what the stories would be, but duties to his other films, and there is the possibility that personal issues with a very ugly pending divorce took him away from the control that he enjoyed with, with the original Star Wars. And notice that I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt here. I mean, the sad irony is, like Roddenberry, when the creator was removed from his creations, the better off they were. Now, here's a quote from George Lucas about The Empire Strikes Back. I mean, listen to this. He said, Writing has never been something I've enjoyed. And so ultimately, on the second film, The Empire Strikes Back, I hired Lee Brackett. Unfortunately, it didn't work out. She turned in the first draft 
and then she passed away. I didn't like the first script, but I gave Lee credit because I liked her a lot. She was sick at the time she wrote the script, and she really tried her best. During the story conferences I had with Lee, my thoughts weren't fully formed, and I felt that her script went in a completely different direction. That is Lucas on the script for The Empire Strikes Back. Yeah, it did go in a different direction, and it went in a better one that set the tone that future sequels would want to follow. Now go back and watch Star Wars, or as most of you know it as, A New Hope. Not as a quote-unquote fan, but just as a regular movie watcher. The dialogue is indeed flat. The direction is basic, and the now classic saber battle between Obi-Wan and and Darth Vader looks more like two badly choreographed men waving light sticks than a good versus evil confrontation. Yet when we first saw it, we were enchanted because the overall effect of the film was this. We never saw shit like this before. The opening shot of the Star Destroyer cruising above us for so long endlessly, we knew we were in for something really cool. Now Lucas, he had a sweet backdoor deal on the very first film. The studio would get the biggest slices of the box office pie. However, Lucas retained merchandising rights. And most people, especially Star Wars fans, that this is not news. It wasn't box office that built Lucasfilm. It was toys. Christmas 1977 saw so much of a demand for Star Wars toys. And I remember this as a kid. Empty boxes were shipped with the promise of the order later being filled. Lucas was a billionaire and he earned it. Lucas retreated to Hawaii to plan Raiders of the Lost Ark with his buddy Steven Spielberg, and he waited for Star Wars to fail. This was just before it opened. But when it hit, Raiders went into production, and Lucas was enabled to direct or actively produce the sequel to his box office monster. He hired on a director with Hollywood knowledge without being Hollywood, which was Irvin Kirshner. Lee Brackett and Lawrence Kasdan took the writing chores. While Lucas popped on set here and there, Overall, The Empire Strikes Back went forward without his direct influence and without Lucas's meddling. As most would agree, Star Wars provided the foundation, but The Empire Strikes Back, well, I mean, The Empire layered on the flesh, muscle tone, and and the real meat of the entire story. Darth Vader was elevated into something beyond evil, and, and Han became a martyr. While many point out the usual lines, I love you, I know, I am your father, there is no try, for me... All the series stands for is played out when Han is lowered into that carbonite. And that scene where Han Solo is dipped into carbonite through chills up my neck, wet my eyes with tears, and it was done with virtually no dialogue. John Williams' operatic score, which I feel The Empire boasts the best score of, of his entire career, conveyed the agony of evil's triumph. Chewie throws his head back in a mournful wail as his friend is lowered. Leia loses the man she's just discovered she truly loves. And Vader stands by as a black monolith of moral corruption. There is no greater scene in any of the films. There is no scene that comes close to so many emotions, excitement, despair, and hope. It is truly powerful. And you can find it online, of course, if you have the DVD. And most of all, if you're listening to this episode, you know exactly what the hell I'm talking about. None of the other films, and and you know, we'll see what Abrams gives us with the rise of Skywalker, has what these few minutes have. 
It was the moment that I realized at 14 years of age that maybe Lucas wasn't a god after all. Maybe he was just a guy who made movies. But there were other guys who made movies too. Maybe I had pierced the veil. Yet for Lucas, this was not the way he wanted things to go. He had more influence over Return of the Jedi, which some say he picked director uh, Richard Marquand uh, because he he would be a malleable director and, and bend more to Lucas's vision and influence. It's with Jedi that we get our first real uh-oh moment. And let me tell you, the uh-oh moment came in the form of the Ewoks because Lucas figured, aside from Chewie, he didn't have any plushy cute toys to sell. I've always equated Return of the Jedi to Richard Lester's Superman 2. Slapstick and bad humor peppered that film, giving it a far more tone than Empire's dark foreboding. And, and if you remember Richard Lester's cut of Superman 2, the theatrical version, not the Richard Donner that recently came out, there was a lot of slapstick in that and some really bad special effects. And that's because Richard Lester came on after Richard Donner was let go. And I always maintain that Superman 2 would have been a far different film had Donner directed it. And we we get that support with the Richard Donner cut of Superman 2. Return of the Jedi is, is pretty much the same way. And that is, there are some really bad, stupid moments in this movie that take you totally out of the Star Wars universe. It was a 180 degree turn and, and Lucas was was driving the speeder in, in Return of the Jedi. While Marquin really tried to do his best, a lot of people on set said that, that Lucas just hovered over the guy the entire time. I mean, it's here where Boba Fett is totally rendered useless. Jabba plays comic book relief and, and while the ending confrontation between Luke and the Emperor was, was rousing in, in hindsight, like 30 years later... It was a clear pathway to the dark side of the prequels. We were being set up and we had 20 years to prepare for it. I mean, think about all of that stuff in Return of the Jedi. We, we set up this great character with Boba Fett and then you dispense with him by throwing him into that Sarlacc thing, that the giant vagina in the middle of the desert. And, and like he was knocked into there simply by accident. You know, uh, Han Solo banged his power pack or his jet pack or something. And then we have Chewie, you know, yelling, uh, swinging from the vine like Tarzan in, in the middle of Endor over the Ewoks. And it just wasn't good. And you know, I, I have to say, does anybody really realize that the fucking Ewoks were cannibals? Like they were going to eat those people until they, they did the Jedi trick with 3PO. I mean, they weren't adorable little things. They fucking eat you. Lucas was back for Return of the Jedi. And, and while he wasn't in the director's seat, he was back as a scriptwriter, And behind the scenes stories tell of Lucas allegedly bullying Marquin into following his directives. Others said Marquin was inexperienced despite a solid track record in, in previous thrillers and critically acclaimed films. Lucas went from young, eager film Padawan to the emperor himself by some accounts. He controlled the system and was the ultimate power in the Star Wars universe. So it's here where I'm gonna say that you know, Lucas deserves some shit. Like Roddenberry, did he feel that because he created these worlds, his authority was to be unchallenged? And here are some quotes by people affiliated with Return of the Jedi. And the first one comes from Robert Watts, who was the producer. And he said, George came and he never left. Richard couldn't grasp it. And George was concerned. So he never left. Now, Kit West, one of the special effects artists on Return of the Jedi said, George was on Richard's shoulder 
the whole time. Sean Barton, one of the editors of Return of the Jedi, said, George knew it wasn't going to be good even before the first cut was screened. We didn't get it right for George. And then Stephen Starkey, another producer on Return of the Jedi, said, Richard had interpreted George incorrectly or his instincts were moving in a different direction. Now, superfans packed movie houses to get a glimpse of the new trailer for the first Star Wars movie in 20 years after Return of the Jedi, and that was, of course, The Phantom Menace. And I remember when the countdown started. Star Wars fever was back in 1998, and Lucas was directing, but there were disturbances in the Force. I remember going to see this new film with my brother, and the lights went down in the 20th Century Fox. That came up, that anthem played. Lucasfilm showed up all shiny, and then the famous words, a long time ago. And that's when my brother looked at me and said, man, I hope this doesn't suck. Lucas got to tell his story for Phantom Menace, and Jedi positioned us for it. Phantom Menace was more of untelling a story, and it was here that I realized the problem. Lucas had no one telling him no on the set of Phantom Menace. No one had the balls to tell the Emperor about his clothes. So there's Jar Jar, midichlorians, plasma ball battles, little Greedos playing with Annie, C-3PO built by Darth Vader, who, who thought this was a good idea. Obi-Wan works with R2-D2, but in A New Hope, he said he never remembered owning a droid. For a non-fan, I sure felt I knew my shit and Lucas was full of it. There wasn't anyone on Lucas's staff who read his script and said, George, this is bad. Like seriously, bring someone in. What's Kazdan doing? At least have Kazdan take a swipe at it. Lucas allegedly financed episode one with his own money. And that consolidated his power, if that's true. Lucas said this about fans. Well, it's not a religious event. I hate to tell people that. It's a movie, just a movie. The controversy over who shot first, Greedo or Han Solo in episode four, what I did was try to clean up the confusion, but obviously it upset people because they wanted Solo, who seemed to be the one who shot first in the original, to be a cold-blooded killer, but he actually isn't. It had to be done in all close-ups, and it was confusing about who did what to whom. I put a little wider shot in there that made it clear that Greedo is the one who shot first, but everyone wanted to think that Han shot first because they wanted to think that he actually just gunned him down. Well, that's Lucas's own take on his own fans. So let's look at these fans just for a minute. The stereotypical fan often claims to be bullied. They've been bullied in their lives. They were bullied in school. And so their answer to anyone who disagrees with them or pokes fun at their Star Wars world is to bully and threaten back behind the safety of online anonymity. Sounds like these fans who preach about virtue, justice, and freedom, you know, the things that they say their Jedi heroes stand for have gone to the dark side. So back on topic, George Lucas took to the media a few weeks before uh, The Force Awakens opened to say that his ideas for a whole new series of Star Wars films were nixed by Disney after acquiring Lucasfilm for that $4 billion. And while I'm not a fan of the Disney empire, I will say this was probably the smartest move they could do to recoup their money. I mean, Disney said no to George Lucas and he will be rewarded handsomely, which he was. George got his money and was respectfully told to go away, far, far away. 
If you remember, I, I was talking about when my brother and I went to go see The Phantom Menace and, and we left our wives at home. And it was part of an effort to recreate the magic of youth. I mean, we were older now. And much like the excessive and cloying advertising for The Force Awakens, a pre-internet world was pummeled with Star Wars mania when The Phantom Menace came out. I mean, fans clogged the theaters just to catch a teaser trailer. And that's when I heard the first rumblings of uh-oh moments. The film looks CGI-filled and cartoonish, but the music was great and super fans, I guess, they were rejoicing. So my brother and I, as we said, we went to the theater about a week after Phantom Menace opened. It was packed. My brother said something simple and prophetic, like I said, I hope it doesn't suck. And the lights went down and applause filled the theater and, and you know those logos came up and the music, the Fox Anthem, all that stuff that I said. And the audience went crazy. I remember when a long time ago came up on the screen, I looked at my brother and said, we're 14 again. But then the uh-oh moment came in that title crawl, and, and some of you probably remember it. There were trade routes and federations and taxation, and, and what the fuck was this? Planet blockades? There, there might be hope. They sent two Jedis to do something hopefully interesting, and my eyes glazed over. It was like getting this awesomely wrapped gift as a kid. You tore into it and found out that it was socks, underwear, or a book. It didn't get any better. Real Tunisian or Norwegian landscapes were replaced with dull green screen ones. Battle droids were talking like 60 robots. Remember that? Roger, Roger. And R2-D2 was doing shit we never saw in any of the other films. And then, of course, came Jar Jar. And after that came the sea monsters and the powerball battles. And there was some shit to do with Queen Amidala and, and a stunt double. And, and we had the bad guys talking like bad Asian stereotypes. And on top of it all, we had the immaculate conception of Anakin Skywalker. And Lucas got his way. That's my whole point in telling you this. He populated Tatooine with all the toy bearing characters he wanted. A lot of people will say the Phantom Menace was really bad. And again, it doesn't suck. The Phantom Menace does not suck because a lot of high-end work and talent and artistry went into it. No, it doesn't suck. You're really going to say John Williams sucks, his score sucked? However, it was boring. And Lucas went ahead and he explained the Force Away as a genetic condition. I mean, I could hear the groans in the audience. I remember that sitting there, people going, oh, get the fuck out of here. There was an interesting character besides Ewan McGregor's Obi-Wan Kenobi, and it was a hooded carnival devil named Darth Maul. Now that guy was fucking interesting. So we sat through Ewan McGregor and Liam Neeson doing their best bad CGI characters who gave a more realistic performance than Jake Lloyd hearing Anakin yell, yippee, a convoluted and who gives a shit plot about trade federations and boycotts and some kind of political intrigue with the guy we all knew was the emperor. And I say bad in quotes, but that focus is totally on the story and it was Lucas's story. And he couldn't badmouth or downplay Lee Brackett, and he couldn't put anything off on Lawrence Kasdan. This was his entire story, and the failure or success of the film falls squarely on him, as it did with the two subsequent prequels. The story around Hollywood with Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skulls was that Frank Darabont and um, George Lucas had some issues over the script, and that Lucas was very jealous of Darabont's original script, and basically said, if you use that one, then I'm not going to be part of, of this movie. So Spielberg uh, caved and they used Lucas's script. 
And Frank Darabont, as you know, is is the man behind Shawshank Redemption and The Green Mile and The Walking Dead. And and he had a damn good script, they say, for Indiana Jones 4, the, the Kingdom of the Crystal Skulls, as it would go on to be known. So Lucas had been pitching the Crystal Skull story for years. He even wanted to do it as one of the episodes. Remember that young Indiana Jones TV series? And Lucas declined Darabont's script. And as I had said, told Spielberg that if he chose the Darabont screenplay, he would not return to produce the film. Here's a quote from Frank Darabont on the entire script debate. And he said, I told George he was crazy. I said, you have a fantastic script. I think you're insane, George. You can say things like that to George and he doesn't even blink. He's one of the most stubborn men I know. So I come back. It's almost like a cycle of abuse. I come back for episode two a couple years later thinking, well, this one's got to be better, right? The kid is gone. Anakin's grown up. It's got to be better. And I was with my ex-wife and we went with about eight people to go see Attack of the Clones. And I was sitting in the theater and I think this sums up everything I have to say about it and Lucas's writing and direction. And that is when they got to the water planet where the clones were, when Obi-Wan went there, um, my ex-wife turned to me and she said, okay, I'm lost. So the people on the water planet there, and I stopped her right there and I looked at her and I said, I don't fucking know and I don't fucking care. When did I ever say that in a previous Star Wars movie back in the 80s of the original trilogy? Even with Jedi, I did not say that. I I just had to suffer through so much. And again, Plinkett does the best job of talking about all of this. But this all falls on George Lucas. Bad dialogue. Couples rolling in high grass with alien elephants lumbering about. What the hell happened? My God, how could I let this happen to me? It's my fault. I did this to myself. I paid the money to go see this movie. Did anyone read this and and even in the kindest words possible say to Lucas, I'm really lost here, George. This is all just a tad bit confusing. It becomes clear as to why Disney tossed Lucas's story ideas for a new trilogy after the purchase. They were intent on ending the cycle of abuse. And speaking of which, I went right back for episode three because everybody said, this is the one, the revenge of the Sith. This is the one that's the darkest one. It's the rise of Darth Vader. This will redeem it all. And I really felt that way. If if the uh, revenge of the Sith is great, then all is forgiven for the previous two. And I drug a friend along with this and he said, he goes, dude, Those two other ones really sucked. Please tell me this one's going to be better. And if it isn't, I'm going to kick your ass after the movie's over. And he was a really big guy. And I knew he was joking, but I kind of felt like, man, I better be worried about this. So I I wagered everything on the fact that Revenge of the Sith was going to be fantastic. But in the immortal words of Dr. Evil, how about no? The story gives us more Anakin whining and and suddenly going all stalker nuts. He, He will lose his new wife. The Emperor looks like he's getting head from Anakin in the final seduction to the dark side. I mean, really, watch that scene. It looks like, you know, he's some type of sexual predator getting a blowjob. Anakin goes all George Bush and decides you're either with him or against him. And so a bunch of little kids are naturally against him and he slaughters him. And well, now that motherfucker's really dark. Amidala dies for no reason other than she gave up the will to live. You know, because you just gave birth to twins and now is the time to decide you don't want to stick around. 
The ending fight scene, Spielberg is said to have directed much of it, is just a green screen orgy. And it's a video game that goes on for fucking ever, like the fight for the glasses in They Live. Only that was really a send-up. If Revenge of the Sith had just been good, just good, all would have been forgiven. And then, just when you think it's over, that it couldn't possibly get any worse, you got this. No! You know what I'm talking about if you saw the film. This scene is indefensible. Vader's creation is reduced to a Simpsons-style Frankenstein spoof. This is horrible, and the audience that I was with openly laughed out loud at the stupidity of it all. The lights came up, and I looked at my big buddy, and he said, you have 30 seconds, and I'm coming after you. And he was only half joking. So when The Force Awakens came around, Disney wrote a check, thanked George for his years of service, and sent him on his way, maybe back to his food court. Don't go away mad, George. Just go away. The lesson out of all of this for this podcast is love Disney, hate Disney, wherever the franchise is going. And again, we can get into the absolute hatred for The Last Jedi. Disney did say no, and it did serve them well. Look, let's give credit where credit is due. And that is George Lucas created a great world. He helped redefine filmmaking and distribution. His vision gave many fun movie memories and Saturday matinee fun. He even made Christmas and birthdays a lot more fun too for the gifts, not the holiday special. And for all of that and so much more, we owe a debt of thanks to George Lucas. I truly hope all of his money has made him somewhat happy. From what I hear, he's, he's been a very generous philanthropist, as, as I said, and he does give back to his fellow man and he doesn't have to. But it's nice to know that that he's a nice guy. I've also heard that he's a pretty unhappy guy. And and I really hope that's not true. He has all the money in the world. And and I hope he's enjoying himself. I also hope that that J.J. Abrams had some people around him for this next installment for Rise of Skywalker. I mean, we'll, we'll see what happens with that one. Again, I hope it's not a Star Trek into darkness. And he just pillages previous good material like he did with The Force Awakens with Star Wars. I hope he has people on his staff that tell him no when necessary. We're going to find out in another month or so. And again, thank you for your time to listen to this. Hope you got something out of it. And again, there is nothing wrong with enjoying movies. But in the end, they're just movies. This is Harrison Smith with Cinema. Thanks for listening. Head on over to iTunes and give me a like and review. And if you want to read my cinema blog, you'll find it at horrorfuel.com forward slash author forward slash Harrison.